a penetrating question on this model that really has two parts to it. Part one is like this. There are many reasons why a guy won't make it in learning. I had a bad head, I was distractible, I had ADHD, I had a bad upbringing. There are many, many reasons, and some of them are legitimate, and some of them aren't. But you see, if I'm standing next to you, and I tell you my litany of reasons, you don't know if I'm telling the truth, you don't know if I'm right or wrong. Why? Because you could hear my words, you could see my body, but you don't know what's going inside of me. You don't know what's going on. The problem with this Gemara is it's not discussing here and now. This Gemara is discussing when this part, the body is put in the ground, I stand in front of Hashem, and Hashem is the Shofit. Hashem is judging me. So question number one is, why does Hashem need Hillel? Well, if Hillel could have done it, then you could have also. Hashem is a very fine Shofi, a very acute, observing judge. Hashem should peer into the essence of the only who He created and say, Mr. Poor Man, you had the capacity or you did not. You could have done it or you could not have done it. What does Hashem want? If Hillel could do it, so too could you. So question number one is, what do we need Hillel for? But question number two is far more penetrating. Question number two is the Vilna Golan tells us the most painful moment in a person's life is not that fatal car crash, not the crunch of glass and metal, not even when they pull the sheet over your head, and not even when you separate. The Vilna Golan tells us the most painful moment in a person's life is when you leave this physical world and you stand in front of the Basin Shamala and they hold up this picture of a great individual a tremendous Tamar Chacham, a man with sterling midos, a man who changed himself and changed the very generation in which he lived, and they say to me, why didn't you become that? <laughs> Little me. I mean, that great man. And what do you want from me? It says the girl, the most painful words a being will ever hear are the words, that is you. That is you had you lived up to your potential. That is you had you used your capacity. That is you had you become what you were destined to be. But gentlemen, the picture is a picture of me. I'm not compared to you. You're not compared to him. None of us are compared to Tzaddikim living hundreds of years ago. Each of us were given different temperaments, different abilities, different capacities, different homes. And it's one question they ask you when you've done your job here. How much of you did you become? 80%? 60%? 40%? So if question number one is that we don't need Hillel, Question number two is that Hillel is the wrong scale of measurement. Who cares? Once in history, there was a great individual called Hillel. What relevance does it have to do with the Oni? The Oni is in Hillel, and he's not asked to be Hillel. Well, if Hillel could have done it, so too could you. It doesn't matter what Hillel did. It doesn't matter what Hillel could have done. What matters is what was the capacity of the Oni, and how much of him did he become? So question number one is, what do we need Hillel for? Question number two is that Hillel is a wrong scale of reference. And I'd like to see if we can answer these two questions and better understand what Chazal are sharing with us. And to do that, I want to share with you guys an interesting observation. Today, in Asia, much of the heavy lifting is not done by crane. Much of the real workload is not done by machine. Much of the heavy lifting is done by the elephant. You could still watch the trainer all day long, kind of pulling the rope, and this mighty behemoth lugs heavy loads on its back and its trunk rolled up logs. All day long, the elephant schleps in the jungle. All day long, the trainer leaves it. 
At night, the trainer ties this elephant up to a peg in the ground, and the elephant remains there the entire night. And if you were looking at this scene, you might ask the question, the animal is huge, powerful. The rope isn't that strong. The peg isn't that deep. The question you might ask is, why doesn't the animal just escape? Why does it just break out, go into the jungle and eat, forage, do whatever it wants? And the answer is that the elephant can't escape. Why? Because when the elephant's born, it weighs about 250 pounds, and the trainer ties it to a peg in the ground. And the baby elephant tries to escape, but it can't. It tries a second time, and it can't. It tries for a week, it tries for a month, and then the elephant learns a lesson. The peg is too deep, the rope is too strong. And that lesson remains fixed in its mind even when it's fully mature, even when it weighs 14,000 pounds, when it can plow through a cement wall like it's paper, it remains rooted in the ground, not because physically it can't escape, but in its limited understanding, the peg is too deep, the rope is too strong, it can't do it. And I believe that that is an apt muscle. Many, many people that you will meet don't become a fraction of what they could have been. Well, not because they don't have talents, not because they don't have abilities, but because they have a very small version of themselves. Well, you want from a regular guy, a regular Joe, plain vanilla, you want me to be great, I want to aspire to things, set goals, come on, I'm just a regular guy. And if you sincerely believe about yourself that you're just a regular guy, I guarantee you your self-fulfilling prophecy will bring you to exactly that. And many, many people have tremendous abilities, tremendous talents, and they don't become a fraction of what they could have been because they have these limiting beliefs, these small versions of themselves that, like the mighty elephant, keeps them shackled. Those limiting beliefs keep them to very small visions, very small dreams, very small goals. And every once in a while, you hear about somebody shattering a limiting belief. I'll share with you one from competitive sports. Historically, one of the most impenetrable, unbreakable records in all of competitive sports was the four-minute mile. For almost a hundred years, runner after runner from country after country tried to have someone break that four-minute mile to run the mile under four minutes, and no one could do it. In 1912, Pavel of Sweden ran the mile in four minutes and 10 seconds. Twelve years later, Carpenter, American fellow, ran the mile in four minutes and six seconds. Runner after runner tried, country after country sent their best, but no one could break the four-minute mile. It became almost an accepted fact. Man's skeletal structures are wrong, creates too much wind resistance. It became an accepted medical fact that no human being can run a mile under four minutes. In fact, one fellow in Australia named John Landy ran the mile in four minutes and two seconds four times in a row. And he said the words, it's a brick wall. It can't be penetrated. May 5th, 1954, Roger Bannister broke the four-minute mile. That impenetrable barrier, the brick wall, he ran the mile in under four minutes. Oddly enough, 47 days later, John Landon, the Australian fellow, four minutes, two seconds, brick wall, ran the mile faster than did Roger Bannister. But even stranger, by the end of that year, 32 other runners had run the mile in under four minutes. But here was a strange part. Nothing changed. They didn't change diet, they didn't change running technique, they didn't change running shoes. 
The only thing that changed was Roger Bannister took something from the realm of impossible and he made it possible. And once he could do it, then John Landy, then for the two other runners, now any decent track star runs the mile in under four minutes, but here was the point. It took one individual to shatter the myth, to break through that limiting belief that many could follow suit, but it took one individual to do it. And sometimes you hear about limiting beliefs in other areas, and you read about plain people, regular folk, who shadow limiting beliefs. I'll share with you an interesting one. In 1997, in Tallahassee, Florida, a young boy was involved in a car accident. The ambulances came rushing to the scene, the EMTs were around him, but they couldn't help the boy. You see, they had to bring him to the hospital, but his arm was pinned under the wheel of the car. They had to extract him, but they physically couldn't get his arm out. And then debating what to do, call a crane, get a truck, what, what to do, they don't know. Finally, an onlooker who sees what's happening rushes over, literally bends down, lifts the fender of the car. They take the boy out, put him in the ambulance, take him to the hospital, patch him up, he's good to go. This story became a media sensation. Almost every wire in the United States picked it up. Every newspaper carried the story. Why? Because the onlooker wasn't some burly fireman or some trained medical technician. The onlooker was the boy's 63-year-old grandmother who saw her grandson under the wheel of the car, said this will happen, and she lifted the car. Now, Dr. Charles Garfield is a psychologist. And he spent his career, 20 years of his career anyway, studying athletes who do things that you and I would say are physically impossible to do. In fact, he wrote a book called Peak Performance. And in his book, he describes athletes doing things that can't be done. He describes an athlete lifting a 1,200-pound boulder. He describes athletes running for 48 hours straight, things that the human body wasn't designed nor currently imaginably to be done, yet apparently it's done. In any case, when he read this story, he said, I must interview this woman. He studies not just the physiology of it, but the motivational part of it. And he said, I must interview this woman. I must get her story. And he described it and called her up and explained who he was, why he wanted to speak to her. And he says that she flatly refused to meet with him. No way. He called a second time. And again, explained who he was, why he wanted to meet with her, what the world maybe could learn from her. She flatly refused a second time. A third time she refused. Finally, the fourth time, she agreed to an interview. He described that he came into her house, and she welcomes him in, offered him a cup of coffee. He sits down and he says one thing, Madam, just tell me what you were experiencing. Just tell me what was going on inside. And he says that she was very graphic, very vivid in describing what she was feeling, her emotions. She went through the whole story and finally said, I don't understand this. What I don't understand isn't whether you can lift the car or not. What I don't understand is why were you so reluctant to tell me your story? It almost seemed like you wanted, you wanted to hide it. What you did was heroic. You saved your grandson's life. Why were you so against letting anyone know it? And he says that she turned to him and she said these words. If this which I knew was impossible, I really could do, what does it say about the rest of my life? And he asked her, what do you mean? And she explained, she always dreamt about being a teacher, and she never got beyond high school education. So with Dr. Charles Garfield's coaching, Mrs. Laura Schultz at the age of 63 began her college career, ended up teaching college level science. But here's the punchline. You and I know that in the real world, grandmas don't lift cars. 
in the real world, the boy stays pinned there until he get a crane, <clears throat> figure out how to get a truck there to move the car. Until the grandmother sees it's her grandson, and it either happens or it doesn't. And she says the words, it has to happen. She rushes over, does that which she never thought she could do, taps energy she never dreamt she had, martial strength she couldn't imagine, and accomplishes something in her wildest dreams couldn't be done. And she shatters a living belief. I was Zohar to hear of a foyer say a eulogy about his father-in-law. His father was Ramonachai Gifter. Now, I don't know if you guys appreciate who Ramonachai Gifter was, but when I was a boy growing up, he was a unique individual. You see, every Gadol Yisrael was born in Poland or in Russia. The idea of a Gadol being born in America, being brought up in the melting pot of assimilation was so foreign that it basically didn't exist. The first, to my knowledge, of the Gedolim born in America was Ramonachai Gifter. And his son-in-law said at his funeral, if you walked into his dorm room when he was 13 years of age, you would see that he was destined to greatness. You see, right over his bed was a mirror. Now, it wasn't that unusual other fellows had mirrors, but over the mirror were the pictures of the people that he wanted to be like. Robert Baer, Shinshkop, all the Gedolim that he aspired to be like, that also was not the unusual part. It was the words over the mirror. And over the mirror were written the words, why not you? And apparently every day, young one of my gifted would walk over to the mirror, look at the people he wanted to be like, peer into those two eyes staring back at him from the mirror. <clears throat> he would read the words, why not you? And there wasn't a reason because he became a Mordechai Gifta, tells her a shiv of God of Israel. But gentlemen, that ability to look into the mirror and ask yourself, what are my talents? What are my strengths? What did Hashem put me on the planet to do? What's my unique capacity and ability? And then to set goals, realistic but powerful goals, and use heroes, people who you look up to, people who walk the same earth as you did, and say, if they could do it, why not me? That's what I call the first principle for success in life. And I believe that's the answer to this Gemara. You know what it means that Hillel is Mechayev, the Aniyam? The Ani isn't asked, Mr. Poor Man, why did you become Hillel? That'd be improper and unfair. The Ani is asked a much more penetrating question. Mr. Ani, why did you reach your potential? And if you give me a list of excuses, there was a man who shattered that limiting reality. The Roger Bannister of your generation was Hillel. If Hillel reached his capacity, you now had a hero. You had a model to use, to put up on your pedestal and say, if he could do it, so too could I. Hill changed the reality. Elizabeth Harsam shattered the myths of the Ashirim. Hill shattered the myths of the Aniyam. Now the Ani can reach his potential and the Ashir can reach his potential. And gentlemen, this principle, I guarantee, you will find in any successful individual, in any endeavor, striving for heights, believing in themselves, looking in that mirror and saying, what are my unique strengths? And then using heroes, people who are older, better, than them, and not saying, why aren't I him? Why don't I reach my potential as he reached his? And that's the first principle for success in life. And I firmly believe that if you inculcate the first principle of success, you firmly get a grip on it and use it, and you don't have the second principle, you will fail miserably. What's the second principle for success in life? So to share that one with you, I'll share with you a little story. 
I was about 23, I was a Mason Edition in Yeshiva at the time. It's a Muslim Yeshiva, and we had Musa Kaburas. What's a Musa Kabura? A Musa Kabura is a small group of guys about the same age, and each week one fellow would present a Kiddush, maybe in a Chazal, maybe from a Muslim Sefer, basically something having to do with character development, something, something to do with an area of Muslim. We debated, discussed it, and then discussed how to apply it in our lives. In any case, I was invited to join a very serious group, a very exclusive group. And the first week, someone came in with a chazal, a brilliant chiddush, and we discussed it, we debated it. Very nice. Second week, someone brought in Dasakin and Balitosis. Third week, someone brought in Arthur Sadikim. Wonderful. It was my week to present. And I walked into the room, and I, uh, I wasn't carrying a Gemara, nor a Chumish, nor a Safer. I walked in carrying a picture sports book. Now these guys took life pretty seriously, valued the time, and didn't appreciate that I walked in carrying a picture sports book, and I got some pretty dirty looks. And then I took the picture sports book, I put it on the table, and I opened it up to the center section where you see Muhammad Ali holding up the heavyweight championship belt. Now those looks turned pretty dirty, as in like, Shafer, what do you want? And I said, uh-uh, tell me what you see. All right, we get it. Frazier had been the world champion. Ali just won the fight. What do you want? I said, that's exactly it. When you look at the picture, what do you see? You see victory. You see glory. You don't see that Muhammad Ali was driven directly from the fight to the hospital. When you look at the picture, when you read the sports section, you read about his winnings, his championship, his victory, and his glory. You don't read about the fact that the world champion got so beat up in that fight that for three weeks he couldn't get out of his hospital bed. 21 days he was horizontal. But that's not the part you read about in the sports sections. World champion, winner, number one. But the pain he went through to get there, you don't read about. Gentlemen, how many people box? How many of you guys have been in a room? All right, good. At least one. The worst is when I speak to girls. How many girls box? And all the hand? No, no hands at all. All right. Okay, I've done some clever things in my life. I've also done some things that aren't so clever. One of the not-so-clever things that I've done, when I was 18, I went, I spent about six months at a boxing gym. But it was the kind of boxing gym I knew I was where I wanted to be because I saw the sign over the mirror where the sign, don't punch the mirror. But it was spelled M-I-R-O-W. I said, hey, Tony, I told you, don't punch the mirror, all right? I knew I was in the right place. Okay. I learned a number of lessons. And one lesson that I learned about boxing is as follows. What is the one criteria Every single boxer has in common. Every boxer, semi-pro, pro, has one thing in common. Anyone know what that is? No? All right, I'll share with you what it is. They're all ugly. No matter how good a boxer you are, you're going to get hit, you're going to get smashed, you're going to get the nose splattered, the ears get moved. After six months, two years, just you don't look the same as you the human face was not designed to be pummeled. Every single boxer carries the scars and just no longer looks the way they came into the gym. With one exception. Pretty boy Ali. So like a butterfly sting like bee. If you guys watch the old fights, you'll see. He would slip, he would duck the punch and just never hit him. The guy was the cleanest fighter. He never got hit. And Muhammad Ali estimated that in his professional fighting career. He got hit in the head at least one million times. That means at least one million times some 220-pound chayara smashed him full force in the jaw, but that was the cleanest fighter in boxing. 
And what I wanted to share with my friends that day was the second rule of success in life. I don't care how talented you are. I don't care how capable you are. You have to know how to take a punch. You have to know how to get knocked down and get back in that fight time after time after time. And by the way, a quote from Muhammad Ali. Muhammad Ali used to say, if you see a professional prize fighter knocked out, you know, the referee counts to 10 and the guy doesn't come up off the canvas. No one understands he's not knocked unconscious. He says it's almost physically impossible to knock out a professional fighter. He's in such top condition, in such good shape, that the idea of knocking him unconscious almost never happens. If a guy doesn't come up for the count, it means he lost heart, lost courage, no longer has the guts to get back in the fight, he's hurt, and he's laid down his gloves. And that concept of understanding that no matter how talented you are, no matter how capable you are, you have to set lofty goals, reach for the stars, and you have to be willing and ready to take a punch. And gentlemen, don't make a mistake, this is not about fighting. It's not about being a boxer. I'll give you a very good example. What is the most um, feminine of competitive sports? Most feminine. Anyone? Most feminine of competitive sports? Ice skating. Ice skating. Figure skating. I asked this to a group of women who twice I've heard the response. The most feminine of competitive sports is shopping. <laughs> no, no, no. I fought with this. Please. Anyway, I agree. Ice skating. Okay, you know, you wear the leotard. You know, you get Okay, very, very feminine. Okay, folks. How do coaches define an elite athlete? How do they determine which girl is going to make it to the champion level and which aren't? Coaches say there's one criteria. How many times a young woman is willing to fall on the ice and get back up? And here's why. You see, the coach teaches you a new jump. So you go home and you practice. You jump and you spin, you jump and you spin. Now you're doing it on a carpet, so if you miss, it's not a big deal. You fall and you pick yourself back up but then you get on the ice. Now the first time you get on the ice, the coach puts on a harness, you jump and you spin, and if you miss the jump, it's not a big deal because the harness catches you. But once you get it down pat, the coach takes off the harness and says, get out there, do it. And coaches say, no matter how agile, no matter how athletic, if you're going to push yourself beyond your comfort level, you're gonna miss jumps. And how many times a young woman is willing to fall on the ice and get back up determines whether she has what it takes to become a champion. The 2006 Olympic gold medal figure skating was won by a young Japanese girl. She was 16 years of age. Her coach estimates from the time she started skating at five until she won the gold medal at 16, those 11 years, her coach estimates that she fell at least 20,000 times, 10 times a session, six days a week, week after week, month after month, year after year, and that's what it takes to be a champion. And you know why most people don't make it? Because you get on the ice once and you fall, you get on the ice a second time and you fall, the third time, the fourth time, and there's a voice in your head that says, cut it out. You're not made for this stuff. You don't got what it takes. Just quit, hang up your skates, and end it. And the ability to keep on getting up off that canvas, keep on getting up off the ice, getting into the game, time after time after time, is the second principle of success in life. And gentlemen, make no mistake about it. This cuts across the gamut of all human activities. We're not talking about competitive sports. And we're not even talking about making a business, which is a no-brainer, that you be willing to fail. I'm talking about any endeavor in life that human being aspires for greatness, and these two principles come into play. And I'll share with you what I mean. I'll share with you guys a quote, and then I'll ask you guys who said the quote. Okay, ready? 
Success consists of going from failure to failure without a loss of enthusiasm. One more time. Success consists of going from failure to failure without a loss of enthusiasm. Uh-uh, no Google. Uh-uh, put that away. Um, okay, no uh, dumb phones here. Anyone take a guess? Who said the... Yeah. Abraham Lincoln. It would have been a good... Uh, certainly when the... Uh, during that Civil War... And his generals lost battle after battle after battle. Remember, the North so outmanned and so outnumbered the South, they should have won it in a few months. And it took him years to win it. He should have said it, but it wasn't him. Anyone else? Thomas Edison. Thomas Edison. Okay. Thomas Edison. Um, Thomas Edison, what did he discover again? The light bulb. When he was already a successful businessman, the Edison Labs were reformed. He decided the incandescent bulb is going to be the way to light up the world. I mean, people were using kerosene, right? They were lighting with a match kerosene. He said, wait a minute, if we have electricity, and he was very instrumental in creating the grids and bringing electricity into, into homes, and if we can create an incandescent bulb, meaning some element, some filament that'll burn, we could bring light to people's homes. But the problem was one element. So he tried cotton, he tried him, he tried different types of metals. He couldn't find a single one that would give off light and not burn out quickly. His biographer estimates that he attempted 10,000 different elements until he discovered tungsten. That means 9,999 times he failed. But he didn't say the quote. So it was a good attempt. Okay, here we go. Who said that quote? Obama. I'm sorry? What did you say? Obama. <laughs> okay, well, um, okay, well, I'll stay clear of that one. Okay, uh, let me, um, a couple of hints. Okay, who said the quote? Number one, the man was a college professor. Not bad. The man um, was a historian. Matter of fact, he won the Nobel Prize in history. The man was a world statesman. Matter of fact, the man was knighted by the Queen of England. Oh, and the man was the Prime Minister of England. The man was Sir Winston Churchill. But let me explain to you who Winston Churchill was. <clears throat> Historians credit Churchill with saving the free world. You see, when Adolf Hitler was elected Reich Chancellor, and the Prime Minister of England was Neville Chamberlain. And Chamberlain had a very simple attitude, appeasement. Give him some Liebenstraum, a little bit of Czechoslovakia, don't, just don't provoke him. From the parliament floor, there was one sane voice. Churchill was a lion that roared. Adolf Hitler's a menace to society. He's a menace to humankind. But no one listened to him. And it wasn't until years later when he was elected prime minister and the Allies began the war in earnest, historians say if not for his galvanizing energy, if it weren't for Churchill, Nazism would have won and this world would have been vastly different. May 1945, Germany surrendered. July 1945, there's an election in England and Churchill was voted out of office. A great war time premise, a great battle general. These are peacetime. We need rebuilding a different kind of leader after bringing England to its finest hour. After saving the free world, he found himself on the streets, unemployed, without a job. He went on to write that six previous work that won the Nobel Prize. He went on to fight communism. But that was his life. Success consists of going from failure to failure without a loss of enthusiasm. Now, gentlemen, what does this have to do with us? Most of us are not planning to be professional boxers. Most of us probably aren't even considering being coming Prime Minister of uh, England, and maybe not even President of the United States of America these days. So what's it got to do with us? Okay, <clears throat> gentlemen, I am not 100 years old yet. 
but I'd like to share with you my generation was a little bit different than your generation. When I was a kid growing up, and you asked somebody the following question, what do you want to be when you grow up? Every one of my friends, and anybody my age, had a very clear answer. You were either going to be a brain surgeon, make a billion dollars, change the world. You had some goals, some aspirations, some vision of what you were going to be. Ask a 20-year-old today the following question. What do you want to be when you grow up? I don't know, whatever. Now, what are your goals? What are your dreams? Whatever. I don't know. Make some money, spend the money, make some more money, and we die. You know, whatever. You know? But what gets you up in the morning? What, what do you want to become? What do you, what do you want to be 20 years from now? I don't know. Whatever. Get married, have some kids, make some money, spend the money, and then we die. Whatever. Whatever. It doesn't matter. And you guys are probably saying, no, nah, Rabbi, you're making that up. Right? Right? Okay, how do I know I'm not making it up? <clears throat> um, anyone here know what sleeves are? Okay, sleeves are tattoos that run from shoulder to wrist, on the outside and the inside. Okay, now here's a little question. What would motivate someone to adorn his body with all of these types of dragons and flowers and other things? Um, it's a good question, I think, because quite a lot of people do it. As a matter of fact, um, over 40% of the United States population under the age of 35 have at least one, if not two, tattoos. And it's rising because if you look at people under 20, it's even higher. But okay, what would motivate a person to do it? So here's a couple of observations. First of all, I took my son bowling a little while ago, and I got to see the Brown Zoo. You see, in the alley next to us, a fellow was wearing shorts. And I got to see the lions, the tigers, the bears adorning his legs. and his... So here's the question. If you're a sailor and you inscribe your ship on your forearm, I get it. There's an allegiance. It's big in your life. If you're a U.S. Marine and you put the core symbol on your delta, it's a core. I, I get it. But could you explain to me putting a Pez candy dispenser on your chest? Could you explain to me Disney characters? Fluffy! Oh! Oh, the dwarfs! Oh, that's really nice. But gentlemen, I'm not like inventing this stuff. Don't go on the street, don't look. But just look! Open your eyes and look at what people put on their body. And look, guys, I'll be honest. I have a little yitzhara. I love to get the story behind a tattoo. How do you get the story behind a tattoo? Anyone know? Yes. Yes. It's really very simple. I mean, CBS, a guy gave me a change. And uh, I saw as he put out his forearm, Sally, S-A-L-L-Y, emblazoned on his forearm. So my yitzhara kind of flashed up and I said, whoa, nice tattoo. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I got started with tattoo. And of course, I said to him, So tell me, uh, does Sally have your name blazoned on her forearm? Nah, she's way too smart for that. <laughs> you know what he's saying? He, she's way too smart for that because he knows that they're going to break up and he's going to have another one, another one, another one. He'll have a first wife, a second wife, a third wife. And 20 years later, he's not going to remember who in the world Sally was. But for the rest of his life, her name right there on his forearm. What are you thinking? So maybe you'll tell me. He thinks that if he doesn't like it, he'll get rid of it, right? Right? Anybody here Jewish? Okay. I heard you and you Jews are good businessmen. Would you like a brilliant business idea? I guarantee you'll make a billion dollars. A brilliant idea. Here we go. You ready? Invent removable tattoo ink. How do I know you're making a fortune of money? 
because there's something called tattoo regret. 50% of people who put tattoos on have this strange thing called, oh my god, what I do? Pez candy dispenser? I'm in the client, the tag isn't there, Sally? And they try to remove it. Now, you'll note, removing tattoos is not that easy. The fellow who sponsored that book, Stop Surviving, he's a plastic surgeon. And he tells me that to remove light inks, maybe, if they're not too big, dark inks, forget about it. Even skin grafting doesn't work if it's too big of an area. It becomes all near impossible to remove a tattoo. So obviously, if you were to invent a removable ink, you'd be phenomenally successful, right? Well, interesting enough, someone did invent just such an ink. They took the ink, but instead of having it be liquid, like the water in, in that bottle, they micro-encapsulated each drop, meaning each kind of drop of ink is covered with a tiny, tiny little micro-sized little plastic ball. So when you inject the ink under the skin, it actually flows like ink, because it's very tiny. It, it stains the skin like ink, so it really looks like whatever the tattoo you want it to be. But if six months later or six years later you have regret and you want to get rid of it, one laser treatment. The laser melts the plastic, and then the ink kind of just like sort of gets absorbed into the skin. A month or two later, it's absorbed into the bloodstream, and it's gone. A brilliant idea. The guy should make a mil I mean, a myth. Wealthy beyond belief, right? The idea failed, and he went bankrupt. Why? Because the owner of tattoo parlors explained that they had to charge 20% more for the removable ink. A fellow would come in for a tattoo, and the, the fellow owns the problem and say, listen, I can give you removable ink for 20% more. No one wanted to pay the extra 20%. And the owners explain why. If a guy comes in to put on a tattoo, he wants it to be permanent. If he didn't want it to be permanent, he wouldn't put it on. So the idea of removable ink has no market. So gentlemen, would you like to understand what's going on here? If your body is an etch-a-sketch and you just put on whatever, whatever, what it means is your life has no value. And you know why? Now I'm alive, now I'm doing whatever. I'll be 30 and I'll have to worry about covering up my sleeves and covering my neck. I'll be at a board meeting one day and I'll have to worry about... It doesn't really matter. We're a bunch of slum rats. It doesn't matter, whatever. And if you're not sure that I'm right, I'll give you the challenge of the 21st century. Stand on Fifth Avenue during midday and I'll give you the sociological little experiment. Stand off to the side with your notepad and count the people who walk down the street like this. Smiling or happy. You know what I'm talking about? Find me a model for a teenage uh, clothing line. Jeans, t-shirt, any single model who's modeling clothes, especially guys' clothes, has an interesting expression on their face. You know what it looks like? Why is it that the models, you know, modeling, t-shirts, jeans, shorts, why aren't they standing like this? You know why? Identification. And when you identify with that person, you identify with that individual, that persona, you're more likely to buy the clothing. The problem is that the people I hang out with don't smile and they're not happy. And if I see a model who's got a smile on his face, he's a geek, he's a dork, he's not my kind of people, and I'm not going to buy his clothing. And if you think I'm joking, no one understands Madison Avenue knows their psychology very well. That's what they're paid to do. If you guys don't understand what I'm talking about, I'll make it very plain and very simple. Viktor Frankl wrote a book called Man in Search of Meaning. Anyone read the book? Okay. 
It's a book that's well, well worth reading. Viktor Frankl was a Viennese psychiatrist. He didn't know he was Jewish. The Nazis made it pretty clear to him when they put him on a train bound for Auschwitz. In any case, when he survived, after the DP camps, he ended up on landing on the, uh, the upper east side of Manhattan, and he wrote this book. The first book, part of the book, he describes what it was like in Auschwitz, but not first person. He kind of stepped back and he tried to play psychiatrist from a totally objective psychiatric vantage point what was going on. And the first half of the book is a very important read. The second part is even more important. Second part he describes that he landed on the Upper East Side, opened his practice, and almost instantly his practice was filled. Keep in mind, he was a world-famous psychiatrist, and once he put out a shingle, people came flocking, but he describes that the patients he was now interviewing, he didn't recognize the symptoms. In decades of practice, he had never seen this stuff. He describes, a man comes in, and he would say, what can I do for you? Well, Doc, I'm depressed. I'm sorry to hear that. Is it, uh, is it your, your marriage? No. Your kids? No. Your job? No. So why are you depressed? I don't know, Doc. That's why I'm here. A woman would come in and say, Ma'am, what can I do for you? Well, Doc, I'm, I'm depressed. Sorry to hear that. Is it your, your marriage? Your kids? No. Your bridge game? No. Why are you depressed? I don't know. Patient after patient would come in without an attributable cause. An attributable cause means a reason to be depressed. If a woman was married for 30 years and she lost her husband, that's a very real reason to be depressed. And gentlemen, you know something interesting? In the United States of America, there are tens of millions of cases of reported clinical depression every year. Depressed, clinical depression, not like, oh, I lost the game, I'm down. Clinical depression means you don't want to get out of bed in the morning. Tens of millions of cases of clinical depression. Science now reveals to us only 16% of them have an attributable cause. An attributable cause is a major trauma, a major loss. An attributable cause is a genetic predisposition, a gift from the parents of a certain brain chemistry. Only 16% of the tens of millions of reported depressions have an attributable cause. The rest of them, no reason. So Victor Frankl discovered this in the 50s and the 60s, and he said, I don't get it. I don't understand it. What's it about? And would you like to know what his conclusion was? From a psychiatric, secular vantage point, he said these people lack meaning in life. They have no purpose, no existential meaning. They wake up in the morning, make some money, spend the money, and then they die. Well, guess what he said? If man doesn't have meaning, if he doesn't have purpose, he should be depressed, and he would be depressed. And if you'd like to understand Western culture today, I'll give you a very simple muscle. I read a novel a number of years ago. It was about a black fellow who grew up in the South in the 1920s. In the 1920s, he described what poverty was like. He said he went to sleep hungry and get up in the morning hungry. His poverty was so pervasive that hunger was an ever part of his life. And he described that he was walking to school day after day with pain in his stomach until one day he discovered a secret. A neighbor had left a garden hose out, put on the spigot, and he filled his stomach with as much water as he possibly could, and the pain stopped because his stomach was filled until the water passed, and then he was more hungry than he was before. If you'd like to understand Western culture today, and if you'd like to understand why people are genuinely not happy, it's because they're running and they're running, pursuing anything but meaning and purpose. And if you run after materialism, if you run after busyness, if you run after anything but real growth, there's going to be an emptiness inside. And you know why? Because God created you for a purpose. 
Hashem took you from under the Kisei Kavod, put you into this world to grow and accomplish. And if you set goals, and you set your heights, and you begin striving, what happens is there's an inner joy, there's an inner peace, there's a harmony, and you start becoming a different person. Gentlemen, what I'm sharing with you guys is a very interesting point, I believe. Most audience that I speak to, if I do my job well and I shake them up and they say, yeah, I'm going to change, I want to grow, there's not much they're going to be doing. If a guy's 40 and he's got a bunch of kids and he's working 10, 12 hours a day and then this tax season, he's not going to suddenly put a real Seder into operation. Learn a Yomi, maybe. He's not going to really start a major stuck organization. You guys are in a unique position because you have the opportunity to really shape yourself in terms of what you're going to be. And most guys, most people that you meet in life rarely have this opportunity to look in the mirror, to ask themselves, what are my strengths, what are my abilities, what are my talents, what do I want to be? What kind of father do I want to be? What kind of husband do I want to be? What do I want my children saying about me when I'm done? Anyone ever hear write their own eulogy? This is a very powerful exercise to do now. Write your eulogy. Write down on a piece of paper what you want people saying about you when you've done your little job called life. And if you do this exercise, and I mean to really do it, you'll find something very, very powerful. If you do that, you're going to ask yourself the core critical question. What am I doing here? What's life about? What am I accomplishing? What are my goals? Not what other people are doing. Not what's accepted. Not what do I, my parents want. What was I put here for? What are my unique abilities? Where do I want to be two years from now, ten years from now? And you begin charting a life for yourself. Gentlemen, I speak in a lot of different communities and I get some interesting reactions. There's a schmooze that I don't say anymore. Schmooze number 23, the death schmooze. Go on the schmooze app, it's on the Google, it's on the Android, it's on the iPhone. I don't say this one in public because of a certain reaction that I had in a community. The death schmooze basically describes your death. What it's like, your funeral, you put it in the ground, dirt, crash, okay, it's a real happy one. You know, people always say, all right, my chief, could you come to our community and do the death schmooze? Okay. Anyway, while it may not sound so happy, it's a very moving experience. And when I was done in this particular community, I saw people were really inspired because it, it begins, starts your dealing with life in a real way. Anyway, when I was finished, the 45 minute routine, people came over with questions, comments, etc. And when they were coming by, I noticed an older couple kind of hovering on the side. When everyone was finished their questions and observations, etc., the older couple came by. The woman came by first and she said, Rabbi, I love the lecture. I said, oh, thank you very much. Husband filed suit. Rabbi, I love the lecture boat. Now, folks, I've been around the block long enough to know that when you hear the words, Rabbi, I love the lecture but this is going somewhere. So I waited to see where this was going. Rabbi, I love the lecture but according to what you just said, I've wasted my entire life. And I asked them what he meant. Now, folks, let me share with you. When you're on this side of the shtender, an 80-year-old man is on the other side saying, according to what you just said, he's wasted his entire life, and you know that he might be correct. It's a very uncomfortable position to be in. So I stopped saying that in public anymore. If you want to listen to it, you have to go on the Shmooze app. It's number 23. You cannot send me an email afterwards. Rabbi, I love the lecture, but I don't accept it. Um, but folks, I want to share with you something very, very powerful. What did this man say to me? I asked him, what do you mean? 
And he said, well, about this idea that God created us for a purpose, and we had to grow, each giving unique talents and abilities, and we've done our job here, God asks us, what did you become, how much of you, all those questions, I never thought about that. All my life I've worked, done quite well, made a lot of money, but I never thought about that question, and according to what you said, I wasted my entire life. Now folks, let's understand this. The man was 80 years old, a from man in a from shul, putting on throne every day, and he never had that sudden epiphany. Man, I get it. Hashem created the heavens and the earth, the sky, the moon, the sun, and Hashem made me. Hey, maybe there's a reason. Yeah, by golly, maybe there's a reason why Hashem put me on the Yeah. Not to ask that question until you're 80 years old. But gentlemen, if you ask that question when you're 80, it's a little late in the game. But you guys are at a different stage of life. You're at a stage in life where you're choosing your track in life. And who you'll be as a parent, who you'll be as a human being, who you'll be for eternity is largely based on your choices. May Shem grant you the wisdom to choose well. It's not always so simple. I think this Chazal shares with us a tremendous concept. Hillel obligates the poor person because he shattered the myth he was Roger Bannister his day. Like that mighty elephant who can escape his shackles. Most people don't reach a fraction of their potential because they dream, they live within this world or whatever everyone else does, I'll do. And I can't really choose my own path. And most people don't become a fraction of what they did. The two principles of success in life is you have to really set goals, have heroes, and you have to know how to take a punch. Sometimes taking a punch means finding your friends, sometimes your parents, sometimes self-image is the biggest enemy. But it means knowing how to fight. And I want to close with one last thought. What happens to the elephant when it discovers the great secret? What happens when the elephant discovers that the peg isn't deep enough, the rope isn't strong enough? Did I tell you guys what happened? It's 1944, Hartford, Connecticut. Barnard Bailey parked the trucks right outside of town. In those days, they would take the circuits from town to town by truck. They would park the trucks and they would take out this huge tent. And basically, they would erect this very large tent. And under the tent, they'd put the three rings. And that's how the circus would travel from town to town. When they would take out the tent, they would coat it with paraffin. Now, paraffin is water repellent. But as you know, paraffin is also flammable. In any case, it's not clear what happened. But the show was on. The circus was, the crowd was gathered. Everyone was there. And somehow, the tent itself caught fire. Flames, smoke, pandemonium, people rushing. 121 people died. They finally put out the fire, and the circus crew began putting together what was left of the circus. The trainer found that the elephants were gone. They had a herd of elephants that were performing in the show, but they were just not there. He took a crew with him, and they began searching, and they walked, and they walked, and walked. About a mile down in some meadow, they found the, the elephants, and the trainer brought them back. And as soon as they got back to the circus grounds, he tied them up. No sooner did he tie them up than they walked away. He tied them again, and they just walked away. He tied them a third time, and they walked away. You see, what happened was, during the fire, the animals were tied up. It wasn't their time to be in the show. They were tied to those pigs. But the screaming, the yelling, the smoke, the fire, the elephants forgot, and they broke out. But once they learned that lesson, they never could be tied again. Barnum and Bailey had to retire that entire herd. They had to bring in a whole new herd of elephants, because once that elephant discovered the secret, it realized the rope wasn't strong enough, the peg wasn't deep enough. Gentlemen, the most enjoyable experience you'll ever have as a human is when you set a lofty goal and you reach 80%, 60% of it. And you know why that's the most enjoyable experience in existence? 
because that's what Hashem created you to do, to change the essence of you, to make yourself into a nicer kind of person, to grow in learning, to grow in amuna, to grow in dominating, to make yourself into a great individual. And when you set goals and you begin reaching them, there's a sudden change. And you start growing. There's a sense of empowerment within you. There's a sense of joy. And you realize, hey, wait a minute. I'm not stuck where my buddies in high school were. I'm not obligated to be what other people view me to be. I can choose my course. And you set new goals and new goals. You start growing and accomplishing. And you find yourself in a different trajectory of life. Your life is unbelievably joy-filled. You're living a life of growth. And you're not bound anymore to that small little version of who you could be. Before I stop, I just want to mention this was a schmooze. All schmooze are available all free on schmooze.com or on the, um, the app. There's an app for the, um, for the Android as well as, what's that other one? iPhone. something, yeah. The iPhone also has, has an app. If you go to Google Play Store or the, um, what's that one? App Store. So you can get it. The only thing you have to remember is it's spelled funny. Um, it's spelled, can you hold up that car magnet there for me? Okay. You're not creative. Anyone know why it's spelled that way? You know, like brilliant marketing, like Heinz Ketchup, figure out a way that people remember, spell it like on you, right? Uh, I'm a yeshiva guy, I spell schmooze, that's H-M-U-Z, and then they made the magnets and globe and everything, then years later my daughter says, that's not how you spell schmooze, S-C-H-M-O-O-Z-E, is that, well, too late. <laughs> so, anyway, if you remember that it's still funny, you can download the app, it's all free, and there are 240 schmooze, and this was a schmooze, this was actually Heroes, it was six one of the schmooze in about, um, about marriage, about parenting, any of you guys? Oh, all right. But those kind of shows about Amuna, about dominating, about anger management, but that's a good one, jealousy. A lot of, a lot of different topics, all topics of a from Jew dealing with life in the 21st century. I also want to mention two books that are there. One book is Stop Surviving, Stop Living. <laughs> Wait, you can't be a model, you're smiling. Please take that smile. <laughs> okay, that's a very interesting book. That, that book deals with why Hashem created us, what life's about. Um, understanding life difficulties, understanding why people are happy or not happy, understanding obstacles in life. I, it's a very, it's a very interesting book. It sold 25,000 copies and was translated into French, Spanish, Yiddish, and Hebrew now. Um, also Braille. There's not a joke. I have Braille copies. Um, and my daughter actually studied. Has a, a, a girl she works with, a blind girl, and she reads it. Anyway, um, that's one book. The other book is um, oh, finding and keeping your soulmate. Are you guys are, oh, <clears throat> yeah, okay, and, never mind, put that one down. Okay, no, okay, I mean, and it's a very interesting book because it's, <clears throat> I used to teach high school for many years and I would talk to the guys about marriage. And the guys would say, well, really, we're 17. <laughs> it was a little early. Um, so I would tell them as follows. If your idea of learning about marriage is on the way down to the chuppah, I mean, it's a little late in the game. In other words, it's a very good hashkafic um, Perspective on what a person should be looking for. It does with a lot of moon and bitachon issues, but it deals with also what a person should be looking for. And the third book is Shmuel and Pasha. Anyway, the books, the soft cover are 40 each. If you buy any second copy, the second copy is 50% off. There's a sign there with the pricing in case you don't remember. It's 40 40, and the Shmuel and Pasha, I think, is 80 shkolim. And the car magnets is Kola Kodim Zoka. There aren't that many, but if you want to take them, please feel free to take one. Okay, thank you.